Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 342, and I had a conversation with Laura Zam. Laura is an award-winning writer, TEDx speaker, certified relationship coach, certified trauma professional, sexuality educator, and author of her best-selling memoir, The Pleasure Plan. Laura is currently working on a pilot about her own experiences with surviving sexual trauma. She's also the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. Her mother was in two concentration camps and survived a death march. It was a heck of a conversation and trigger warning for this episode as we discuss sexual assault. Happy holidays to everyone. How's that for a segue? I'm going to be taking a couple weeks off and be back in the new year in January, um, which is so bizarre that that's just in two weeks. But please do some deep diving through the hundreds of episodes on Hey Human podcast. Find that gem you've not discovered yet. Maybe it's Evander Holyfield or Jeff, the guy with three hearts, or Katie, the formerly Amish little person, or Holly Dexter, who nearly lost everything to a fire. There are so many incredible stories for you to hear. Take some time and and dig through. And I've tried to be really descriptive in the descriptions, so hopefully you'll find something that you've not only not heard yet, but that will really pique your interest. Check out Hey Human Podcast for links and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out SusanRuth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism on social media everywhere and Hey Human Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Find my music on Apple Music or wherever you get music. (laughs) My most recent record is called All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. Also, please check out my relationships and sex show, Are We There Yet?, with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. It's on YouTube at youtube.com slash are we there yet podcast show. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That's what I want for Christmas. Please rate and review the show. It's really helpful. If you've thought to yourself, hey, you know, I dig this. I should probably go do a review or something and you just haven't taken the time. Take the time. It's so helpful. Please do that. Thank you for listening. Uh, Take care of each other. Stay safe. Be well. I hope that the new year brings everything that you can imagine that is good and wonderful and hopeful. And from my heart to your heart, I love you. Thank you for making 2022 an incredible year. And I've loved bringing this show to you. And I'm excited for the new episodes that are going to be coming in 2023. I've got so much news to share in the new year. There's a lot going on. Um, So I will keep you posted for sure. And let's get into the episode. Thanks, y'all. Here we go. Laura Zam, welcome to Hey Human. So happy to be here. Yay. It's great to see you. It was lovely to see you in real life in D.C. when I was there. Likewise, that was a fun, fun day. That was a fun day. You and I are, are kindred spirits on a lot of levels. Oh, yeah. I think we both have uh, like very, very creative lives and 
and uh, and history, doing all kinds of different creative things. So mm-hmm. absolutely. We both have childhood trauma stuff, different different kinds, but we it's both there. So that's also, I think when people meet each other that are like, oh, you've been through some fire. Oh, you've been through some fire. There's just an automatic bonding that happens. Yeah, I think there's a depth, actually. I think that that those experiences make us maybe have less tolerance for just, I don't know, BS or just uh, like very trivial kinds of conversations. So it's more like just getting right, right down. <laughs> like, you know, we'd only met that one time virtually and then we met in person and then we just got like down and dirty. Oh yeah. Tell me about, tell me about your parents and, <laughs> and overcoming all the dysfunction. <laughs> Yeah. And I, and I often say that when you realize that you're not alone in the world with, with this stuff, mm. firstly, it makes the world feel smaller, which is good, but also you just, you don't feel alone anymore. Yes. Right. Yeah. You get tips, people, people's experiences and the way that they frame things and the tools that they use to right? To rise above different kinds of challenges. I always find that very inspirational and helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. Definitely. Let's get into you. Let's talk about where are you from? Where were you raised? What was family life? Sure. I was born in Brooklyn, New York in Coney Island. And for those who know, it's uh, famous for this amusement park that was very popular in the early part of the 20th century. And, but it's still there. It's still there. It's, it's, uh, it survived all these different years and different kinds of, uh, I guess, uh, problems, urban problems. But it's still there and it's still an amusement park, which is kind of cool. So, yes, I grew up there and I moved to Manhattan, which was a huge move in those days <laughs> to move from the boroughs, what we call the boroughs, to Manhattan, which was the center of things. No longer. Now Brooklyn's a cool place to, to live and even to be from. Kind of immigrants, middle, middle class, not necessarily that sophisticated not that worldly. Manhattan was the place where you were, you got to be cosmopolitan. I was on a podcast actually yesterday and the gal who was interviewing me, she was from a small town in Texas. And she said, what was it growing up, like growing up in New York, such a cosmopolitan place when I was growing up in this small town in Texas? I always imagined that growing up in New York would be this really amazing thing. You'd have access to these worlds and this expanded consciousness. And I said, well, growing up in Brooklyn was exactly like growing up in a small town in Texas. It's just provincial. People don't leave their blocks, don't leave their neighborhoods. Um, So yes, so growing up in Brooklyn was a bit like that, but there was this proximity to Manhattan. And then, like I said, right after college, And I went to college locally at Brooklyn College, commuter college. I lived at home. But right afterward, like the, you know, the day of or something, I moved right into Manhattan to start my cosmopolitan life. (laughs) How was that adjustment? 
Uh, it wasn't a huge adjustment because my mother actually really wanted to expose my brother and I to Manhattan. And so she took us into the city. That's what we called it, the city. Uh, and I think people still call it the city. But anyway, she took us into the city frequently and exposed us to all kinds of different fun things. Like um, we didn't have a lot of money. We we're very working class. Uh, my father worked at the post office. He had a, a job where he was an overnight mail sorter. And my mother did odd jobs. Uh, she was a hairdresser. So we weren't, um, we owned a home, but we weren't very, we didn't have a, we were very middle, middle class. And, uh, and in terms of jobs, working class. But my mother aspired to something grander. And so Actually, four times a year, my mother took us to Saks Fifth Avenue and bought us all these clothes on my father's credit card. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and then we'd come home and there would be a scene about all the money that was spent. But anyway, it was this great exposure, <laughs> Getting, buying all these clothes. And the rest of our clothes came from the thrift store, from the thrift shop. and. Um, but uh, anyway, so but going to Saks Fifth Avenue and we'd walk up Fifth Avenue and go to Central Park and sometimes ride around in a in a, a, a horse-drawn carriage and all this sorts of things. So um, mom exposed me to a lot of fun stuff. And your mom is a Holocaust survivor. Yes, my mom is. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. my mom died in 95, but she survived two concentration camps, two Nazi ghettos and a death march. What's your mother's name? My mother's name was uh, Henia was her Polish name, her original name. But she changed her name to Harriet when she moved to the States. Did she do the Ellis Island thing? She did. She came through Ellis Island and it was also, there was also a kind of rigmarole um, or some ex extensive process to get out of Poland. Um, well, actually she was in Germany. My mother was on this death march that went from Poland to Germany. Uh, most of it took place on a barge, although there was a fair amount that took place by walking, by marching, and it, it was pretty horrific. And uh, my mother was liberated on May 8th, 1945, on the last day of the war in Europe. Um, and then they had, the Nazis had brought her to this town in Germany, or it brought the, these prisoners actually to the, um, to this part of the Baltic Sea. Um, they were on this barge that they were hoping the Allies would bomb. And, uh, and, and that the allies would kill the prisoners. And they did kill, they did bomb another ship. And the, uh, the, the English killed a, a ship full of about 5,000 concentration camp survivors mistakenly. And, um, anyway, so my mother was on this barge and then the barge came to, um, this, uh, this town or came to the bay and my mother, um, and other prisoners managed to get off this barge. That's where she was liberated. So she was liberated in Germany. Um, but then uh, she was in a displaced persons camp. 
um, and then had to find her way to the United States. Um, she had some family here. She had to change her birthday. They changed her birthday legally because she was too old to be on this particular boat. It was for people under 18. She was over 18. So some powers that be legally changed her birthday. And uh, I didn't find out about that. I knew they changed the month, but I didn't find out they changed the year until after she died. And a friend of hers asked me how old my mother was. And I, I told her my mother was 66. And this woman knew my mother in Poland. She said, no, that's not true. Your mother was not saying, your mother was older than that. I knew your mother. How old was she? Do you know? Yeah, I found out. For my brother, my mother's brother, who is, um, who was the only member of the immediate family who survived, um, that my mother was actually two years older than she said she was. She never... She just, I guess, you know, why she she got these years. She lost six years of her life in, in these concentration camps, etc. Why not get two years back? As a kid growing up, was there a sense, an understanding of that history in your family? Oh, yeah. I mean, I knew this from a very early age. I don't remember when I learned about this uh, exactly. But I always knew that my mother had survived these concentration camps. I went to this, um, it was a YWHA, which was a Jewish version of the YMCA. We had one uh, kind of close by. And I started going there. I went to nursery school there when I was four years old. And I went there for years. I did all kinds of programs there, um, summer camp, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, at the at this Y, they had these huge blown up um, photographs of mass graves lining the hallway. They had a, a long hallway, and it was lining the walls of these mass graves. And I remember being a four year old and just looking at these these pictures. And I guess maybe my mother told me or something like that is a visual of what I went through and that that your grandfather, her father died. Um, he was uh, forced to dig, um, you know, dig one of these uh, big like pits, like a, a huge mass grave. And then he was shot into this grave and, um, you know, buried alive or whatever, what have you. Yeah. I, again, it's one of those things where it's so awful to talk about, but so important to talk about. Especially, I think, in these days when people want to just not touch on those things because they are painful or they are shameful. But this is how we repeat things if we don't remember. And we don't say the names of people like Harriet who survived atrocities. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, do you say you have a brother? I have a brother, yes. He lives in Las Vegas. But he works in Denver, so he's back and forth between Vegas and Denver. Got it. Yeah. And when you were, I, I like to, when there is a family trauma that kids are brought up in, I, I'm always curious about this because, like, for example, my mother suffered some pretty intense traumas. And I, and I think it really affected how she raised me versus my brother, for example. 
for someone who survived the Holocaust, who experienced their entire family wiped out and friends and, and all of that, um, how does that create a parent who is more clingy, more distant and your, in your, I'm sure it does different things for different people, but for your family, did it make your mom and father perhaps more intense or less present? How did that relate? My mother was pretty intense. She was pretty intense. She was very, uh, kind of high strung in a certain way. She was, and she was simultaneously extremely involved in our lives, very, very interested and involved, but also kind of negligent. So as an example, my mother would stand over my brother as he did his homework, making sure that he finished his homework. And and she was really, really, she'd go to every parent-teacher conference and she would <laughs> listen to those teachers and, and whatever the teachers recommended, she'd be on our backs, you know. Oh, the teacher said this, you need to do this. Um, so she was very, very, yeah, very engaged in our lives and uh, and 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 watchful. But at the same time, she could be, as I said, <laughs> maybe pathologically neglectful, but you know, by 70 standards, who knows? Um, but once my mother took my brother and I to the movie theater, and the movie theater was, I don't know, it was it was far from our house. You couldn't walk there. It was, you know, miles and miles. I don't know, could have been like 10 miles from our house. It was in a completely different part of Brooklyn. So she took us to the movies. And I remember distinctly, and I recently had a conversation with my brother about it. I remember when uh, we came out of the movie theater, my mother just was not there. And we waited. We waited like an hour and a half, I think, for my mother to show up. And she never showed up. And then we, I, we happened to remember that there was a family friend that lived somewhere nearby but by now it's like dark somehow or other i remembered which apartment it was but it was it was a series of buildings it wasn't even um you know like just one building but it was a whole complex miraculously we found our way to this family friend it was an elderly couple so they were home you know people are old people are home all the time so they were home they let us in they called my mother my mother came to get us and I remember my mother was completely without remorse. She did not apologize at all. She was just like, well, I was very busy with, you know, with something. I think she was remodeling the basement or something. And, and it was just like, okay, oh, I guess. All right. All right. So I grew up very much um, feeling like I had, uh, my father was a, uh, more distant for a lot of reasons, but I felt like I had my mother there, you know, like very much. She had my back and she was really um, loving me so, <laughs> so fully. And, uh, and at the same time, I, I grew up feeling like, well, all right, these parental figures are, um, they may not be there. You got to kind of take care of yourself in this world, don't you? Yeah. 
I wonder how much of that was intentional considering how she had to care for herself. I, I, I cannot imagine how one survives what she survived. Uh, did she ever talk about any of that, how she survived it, what she did to get through it? She talked about it a lot, but um, she talked about it in uh, like in little snippets. Um, and some of it was strategic to make us feel guilty. <laughs> so she talked about it in a way that like supported her point. Um, she didn't we wouldn't talk about it just randomly, like bring it up. So my mother, for instance, would say one of her favorite phrases was, when I was your age, I was sewing buttons on Nazi. Usually it was prefaced by, you can't, something, usually like, you can't clean your room. When I was your age, I was sewing buttons on Nazi uniforms. Hey, these buttons. It was like very specific memory about these eight. Teen buttons that she had to sew on these Nazi uniforms when she was at when she was in one of these concentration camps. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. So I got this picture of what it was like to be in a concentration camp. You are a slave. You are sewing on these 18 buttons. But it was, it was um it was expressed in a way that to make the point that I was this very spoiled being, you know, that had this charmed life and and whatnot. That was a big part of my my childhood. But you know what? It just kind of goes with the territory. <laughs> sure. She sounds like she probably had a lot of tenacity and that got her through, uh, you know, to the other side of it. What what where's your father from? My father's from New Jersey. He's not a, he was American and uh, my dad died in 99, 1999. And my dad was a very different kind of person than my mother. My mother was um, very, very outgoing and, and my dad was more, um, he was more introverted. And I recently had a conversation with my niece and who's a, a, she was an elementary school teacher and she has a master's in early childhood um, development or master's, I think, in special ed, actually. And we were just talking about the family. And this was just a few months ago. And I decided and we agreed, but uh, <laughs> we kind of decided that my father might have been on the autism spectrum. Interesting. Yeah, he was um, pretty introverted and he didn't have any social life whatsoever but he had a lot of things that he was um very very uh in love with very interested in he loved um he loved numbers and uh as a mail sorter he was uh he was very interested in zip codes and he was also interested in traveling my dad took a vacation a yearly vacation every year um, but he took it by himself uh, because he wanted to go visit all 50 states. And this was his project. And he loved to walk. And so he just wanted to go to a new state and walk, 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 walk. And so anyway. <laughs> Did he achieve it? Did he get to all, all states? 
I think he did. I think he did. But I, I never took a, a big interest in this project of his. Vaguely, it was interesting, but I never asked him about or anything. But interestingly enough, I, I, the next book that I want to write and is kind of picks up where he left off. And, um, in a way, it's, uh, it's a book about tea and, uh, tea houses across the U.S. And it'll be a book about my relationship with my father. Um, but also a book about tea and it will involve a similar kind of project going to different states. And, uh, yeah. And in my uh, case, looking at different tea houses. Will it be as memoir or as fictionalized? I think it'll be memoir. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. What's your dad's name? I always like to, to say the first name of the people that have passed on as honor. Yeah. My dad's name was Harold. Harold and Harriet? Yes. Aww. That's real cute. It was. <laughs> Uh, it's like again similarities my dad i think also is on the spectrum for sure really oh for sure for sure for sure sure. but never really diagnosed Mm -mm. but a hundred percent i there's no doubt in my mind yeah high functioning not all the time high functioning mostly high functioning autism yeah i think he's asperger yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. wow wow So anyway, um, let's get into, so you go off to Manhattan and at this point, did you have big ideas about writing? Was creativity on, I know the story, but they don't know the story. So what, what happens now? You go off to Manhattan. Yeah. So I moved into Manhattan in 1985 and I wanted to be an actress And so I immediately signed up for acting classes and I got my BA in theater with a concentration in acting. And so I was on my way and I started auditioning and auditioning and being a waitress. I mean, I just followed the, there was a template. And so I just did what people told me to do, get a waitressing job and then, uh, and then I did manage to get a little bit of work a couple of years out. I got a, a, a tour, a young audiences tour, uh, which was my first professional job, paid job. Uh, and I, I toured a little bit of the country doing that. And, um, but around the time, uh, let's see. So in, uh, in 1989, so I'd been out of college for four years. I started writing monologues spontaneously. And when I say spontaneously, I mean that I was walking down the street one day and it was like a monologue just dropped from the sky into my head. And I, I ran home and I wrote it down. And when I, as I was writing it, and then when I was reading it, I said to myself, this is good. This is, this is, this is something that you're good at. And it was in contrast to the way that I felt about myself as an actor. And so almost on the spot, I I decided that I was going to write these things. I didn't know what really, I was just going to write monologues. 
that this was my calling. It felt like my calling. And, um, and they were monologues for myself to perform. So that made sense. I didn't have any vision for what this was going to turn into. All I knew, I was just following this thing that told me this is what you're good at, what you're meant to do. But the monologues did grow. Eventually, three of these monologues I turned into a, a, a one-person show, and I got to perform that off-Broadway. Not a full production. It was a boyfriend of mine. who was He was a member of an off-Broadway theater company, <laughs> so he directed a production of it, uh, or it was like a couple of performances, I think. But I got this nice little off-Broadway credit. And um, and I just followed that. I just followed these monologues um, to see where they would lead me. And eventually, I, I moved to Prague. I moved to the Czech Republic and, uh, and started to um, build a, a, a bigger, much bigger one-person play. Why Prague? That's a random occurrence on the map. I went to Prague, truthfully, because I was, uh, in addition to writing these these monologues that turned into one-person plays, I spent most of my time doing different kinds of, uh, you know, different kinds of work. So I got out of the restaurant business and I became a medical transcriptionist. And I really hated this work. I had my own little business for a few years, and then I was hired by a a big hospital to be their medical transcriptionist. And I despised, despised this work. And one day, and I didn't know how to get out of this double life, this day job situation. I had no idea. And one day I was working and, uh, and there was a woman who was in my office. She was, had some other mis- administrative job in the office and she went to Israel for two weeks and she came back and she said, I'm going back to Israel for six months. I'm going to do Ulpan on a, on a kibbutz. And I said, what's Ulpan? And she said, Ulpan means that you study Hebrew intensively and in exchange for your language lessons, you are given room and board. But you also have to work on the kibbutz, you know, whatever it's milking the cows or, you know, working in the factory or something. So you get this experience on a kibbutz and you learn Hebrew. And for some reason, when she said that to me, after she explained what it was, I said, me too. I'm going to live on a kibbutz and do ulpan. And I went home that day and I called my parents who were alive then. And I said, guess what? I'm moving to Israel for six months to do ulpan on a kibbutz. Well, the backstory is, and I, I alluded to a little bit of this earlier, my mother's brother the only surviving member of her immediate family, lived in Israel. That's where he went after the war. And my mother had only seen her brother once in the 40 years since um, um, since the end of the war, My uh, meaning 40 years, meaning my uncle came 
to my Sweet 16 party in 1979, he came to New York to visit my mother. But that was the only time my mother ever saw her brother. Were they um, in the same camp or a different camp? My, my uncle was not in the camps. My uncle escaped from the ghetto they were in. And wow. he, lived, he lived in the forest and then he joined the partisans and he fought with the partisans. Um, he was a teenager. Um, he was, you know, 14 when the war started, but he fought alongside the Polish army as a, a partisan. And that's what he did for the remainder of the war. He was never put in a concentration camp. He was never captured. So, um, but my mother was put in these concentration camps and the, the rest of the family was, was killed. Either they died in camps or they died of starvation or some other means, like my mother's father who, who was, um, shot. So anyway, she saw her, fa- her brother, my mother saw her brother in 1939 and did not see her, you know, her brother again until, um, until 1979. Um, and she, so my mother wanted me, had always wanted me to be an emissary and to go to Israel and to see and to meet the whole family. So when I, and that was in my mind with this whole Ulpan thing. And so when I called and told her I'm going to Israel, she was thrilled because she really wanted me to meet the family. And this was a way to live there for an extended time. Well, once I decided that I was leaving the United States to go and do this thing on a kibbutz, and I was already about to age out because you can, you have to be under 31, and I was about to turn 30. Um, once you, um, once I knew I was leaving the States, I just said, well, where else could I go? Like, what could I do in addition to this? And somehow or other, Prague came onto my radar. Um, probably because I had a friend at the time whose daughter was teaching English there. And so I knew it was like a thing you could teach English in the Czech Republic. And around the same time, I met a Czech guy at a party and he said, Oh, Czechoslovakia, if you have $2,000, you could live for an entire year. And so I thought, Oh man, I could save $2,000. I'll work my ass off. I'm going to save $2,000 and I'm going to go live in the Czech Republic, just kind of live and have fun. And then I'll find my way to the Middle East and I'll go and do this Ulpan on a kibbutz. That was my plan. So that's how I ended up in, in Prague. <laughs> and you stuck around. Yes, I was there for, I, I got an academic, I had in order to, uh, then I decided well, let me get a job. You know, you could teach English. I knew that was a thing, sort of. I sort of knew it was a thing. Um, and I found out it was a thing. And I, I hooked up with this placement agency and I got a job, but they wanted me to stay for an academic year. So I committed to 10 months in the Czech Republic, but then I didn't want to leave. Um, I just, I really loved it there. And, um, but also uh, after those 10 months, um, so I decided I would stay a little bit longer. And then my mother died unexpectedly. And I, I only had the bandwidth to go back to Prague because I had employment and a place to live and to repatriate in that grief. I, I just, I couldn't do it. I didn't have the wherewithal. 
So I went back to Prague and lived there, um, you know, for a few more years. Yeah. Hmm. And what made you leave? Well, I knew I wanted to come back. Uh, I found that amongst my friends, there was kind of a three-year mark for, and I found that that's also true for a lot of expatriates, that after three years, there's kind of a a feeling of like, am I going to stay or am I going to go back? In love too, I think. Uh, no, I wasn't. I wasn't. No, no, no. I'm saying that I think, I think relationships also have about a three-year oh. <laughs> oh yeah 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 exactly exactly they can yeah three years is like definitely like a real commitment piece that's, that's right? the choice you're like three years do I stay or do I go yeah do I stay or do I go yeah so I definitely wanted to to come back to the states and my dad at that point was in a nursing home and I wanted to to be close to him but it took two years to set myself up in a way that um, allowed me to to go into a life that was not going to replicate what I had left, which felt like a, a just like something that was um, I didn't know how to get out of, which was this right this kind of prison of the the double life. And so I I I did I I was able to set myself up in a very good way. I got a a, a fellowship for a. a, a a swanky Ivy League, <laughs> amazing MFA program and playwriting. It was fully funded and it was uh, plus plus a stipend and I would be not that far from my dad. I mean, a, a, a big train ride, but still it was on the eastern seaboard and it was like a perfect setup. But then unfortunately, my dad died right before I was I came back to the States. Mm. Wow, they didn't. So that they were, they died pretty close in time. Three and a half years. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that happens a lot. Yeah, it does. I don't know if um, my dad was odd, he kind of thrived in the nursing home. <laughs> really? Yeah. And after my mother died, he kind of came out of his shell a little bit, maybe because my mother had a, such a strong personality. Mm hmm. Uh, and he was very highly functioning for somebody in a nursing home. He had his wits about him. And so he was kind of like a star status there that he enjoyed very much. So, yeah. So I'm not sure if that was um, or if it was just uh, my dad didn't have great longevity in his family. Both his, his brother and his father both died in their 70s. And my dad made it to 76, which was older than both his his brother and his father. Yeah. How is the grieving process for you with you? It's I think about that with my own parents as they I know they're in the the back nine, as you you know, as one says, uh, that I'm well aware every time I'm around them that this is probably one of the final years I'm gonna have with them. Um, and how old are they? 91 and 89. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was the oopsie doopsie baby, so I came real late. Uh, but, and it is a weird thing to wrap your head around. And I, and when I have friends who have lost their parents, I think, how, even when it's a complicated relationship for, you know, how did that, how did that change you? Um, it's hard to be an orphan. I mean, my mother's death hit me 
was very unexpected. And so that one was hit me really hard. And it took me like three years of very, very hard grief. Talk about three years. I was grieving in a really, really hard way for three years. Um, and I don't know if part of it is just the, the shock of it or because it was, um, my mother. I don't know. It was just, it was a very, very hard time. And when my father died, I felt a bit prepared in a way to grieve. So I think the, the overall process was a bit easier, but learning of my father's death was just horrendous horrendous because I, I I had this whole thing set up, this plan for us. And uh and he died also unexpectedly. And I, I I felt, you know, tremendous guilt not being there, not having come home sooner to take care of him. And uh, you know, and to this day I, I think um I might have uh made a mistake in not coming back sooner or at least seen him after um he fell and he broke his hip. And I waited to come back. I was waiting to, you know, till this plan solidified, but I, I really should have gone back uh, right then and there. So I, I made a lot of um, mistakes that had to, you know, that had to do with um, the way that I was caring or not, not properly caring for my father. Mm. So um, I have a lot of regrets around that. Um but the grieving was a bit easier having gone through it already and and having gone through it so intensely. Mm -hmm. All the while but with your parents' death and just even as you were monologuing, were you starting to discover things about yourself that you didn't realize were there? Did, is that part of that process? Did, were there memories starting to come up, things like that, or was that to happen later? No, I think the the... The memories of, you mean my, my childhood sexual abuse? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, which is something I, I write about a lot. Uh, no, I always had memories. I never, I never, I never didn't have memories of being abused. Okay. I was, um, that was something, I mean, it's in fragments. So I can't, I can't say that I, I, I remember everything, but I remember a lot. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so my parents, my relationship with my parents, there was um, definitely things that uh, there's an overlap in the family trauma and my sexual trauma and that my mother, uh, I told my mother when I was six years old that I I had been abused. It was not ongoing at that time, but my brother insisted. I, t I, I confessed to my brother two years after the fact, and my brother, who was at that time, um, he was eight years old. He insisted that I, I tell my mother. And, um, and so I did. And my mother said, that's what men are like. Don't go near him. Wow. Um, that was the response. Yes. Because my mother thought that abuse of all kinds was normal. Mm. And, uh, and that I needed to protect myself. And, um, and she was like, it didn't occur to her that she needed to protect me in this way. And this was and, a neighbor, correct? Yeah. Who lived three doors down. Yeah. Um, 
so, yeah. So I think that that, you know, that, that was a big wound for me um, and feeling that I didn't have protection. Like I said, you know, there were, there were <laughs> blatant kinds of neglect going on. That was another kind of neglect. And it never occurred to me to tell my father. I never told my father about my sexual abuse. He went to his grave and I never had a conversation with him about it. Um, I'm not sure why. I, I really, I'm not, I'm not sure why. I just never, it just, it, I don't know. It didn't come up. Um, my mother painted men in a, you know, in a very um, a predatory way. Uh, my mother was afraid that my father would sexually abuse me. And, you know, she would say as much or intimate like very strongly, you know, like don't walk around in your underwear you know, in front of your father. So I just picked up this thing that like, oh, men are, if if uh, left to their own devices, men are going to sexually uh, abuse you. Was your mother assaulted, do you think? Uh, my mother was, um, had kinds of different kinds of, uh, I guess you could call it assault, perhaps, different kinds of experiences during the war. Yeah, that were perpetrated by Nazis and also by Jews. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was definitely a fear that she had of, uh, of of being victimized sexually. When my mother, when the Nazis invaded their um, the ghetto that she was in, um, or it might have been when she was first uh, transported to to Auschwitz, which was the first concentration camp. I can't remember. But she was um, she was forced to strip in front of these soldiers, and my mother fainted. I mean, it was so. She came from a very conservative Jewish family, a religious family, um, and it would just like shocked her nervous system beyond anything that it could handle. And so, I think that that experience was like very formative for her formative for her. Um, I don't think that she was physically violated, but I think that she was on the, you know, felt uh, very vulnerable in that way. Which is, of course, a violation in its own right. And do you think she ever told your father what happened to you? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. No. My mother would bring it up very uh, inappropriately to me. You know, like she would not talk about it. Like, you know, like she just said that to me initially, but then sometimes she'd, I guess she rethought her initial response. And so like, if something came on the television about sexual abuse or even anything sexual, my mother might turn to me and say, wait, what was that that happened to you again? And I was just mortified. Like I couldn't talk, I didn't have language for this. And Mm. I was you know, it happened at such a young age that I, I just didn't have cognitive um, ability, processes. I couldn't, I couldn't process this. I didn't, and I literally had no vocabulary for, you know, for this. And so I could, I, I just couldn't talk about it at all. I couldn't. Um, and I lived in a kind of mortal fear that my mother would bring this up and that I would have to talk about it with her. Um, it was, yeah. So like if, if there was something sexy on television, I would leave the room in a panic 
fearing mm-hmm. that my mother would bring this up to me and I would I don't even remember what I would say in these circumstances. I mean, it was just, uh, it was almost as bad as the abuse itself, to tell you the truth. There's also something about the language of when you told her the first time of her saying, well, men are predators and you have to stay away from them. That sort of makes it feel like somehow it was your fault, which of course it wasn't your fault, but that sort of feeling, same thing. My mother used to say the same thing to me because she was sexually assaulted as a child. And so you're like, don't walk around the house in your underwear in front of your father. Mm -mm. Really? Yes. Yes. Really? It's, 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 it's a big trip to put on a kid, right? Oh my God. When you, especially when a, when a child has no clue that anything they're doing could be viewed as sexualization because they don't have a parameter for sexualization. That's right. And so they're just walking through the house on a summer day in their underpants at four or five years old, just, you know, chilling out, walking around. And then to have somebody say, oh, what you're doing somehow will create this thing. God, that's a, that's a heavy fucking trip to put on. Heavy fucking trip. And, you know, when they said it, they sexualized us. That's right. We were oblivious to that threat. And now all of a sudden, now we feel like we've been, it's worse than maybe if the father said something inappropriate, because now we also have this like fear. And I don't know about you, but I could never get rid of that. It Oh, no, it definitely screws you up for the rest. Yeah, because it makes you look at your dad different. And my dad and I are super duper close. Uh, And your dad sounds amazing. He's incredible. But it's certainly, I remember feeling like, wait, what? And trying to understand what that meant or what that meant about my body. Like what about my body was doing that? How was I causing this later? Unfortunately, so my mother has a lot of issues for sure, but there would be comments about me and my brother, you know, all this stuff. And so it was a real weird vibe. And, you know, growing up now, you know, once you got to be old enough to realize, okay, that's her, that has nothing to do with anything the rest of us are doing. But man, when you're, when you're in it and you're experiencing it for the first time, you're just like, what am I doing wrong? And like you said, you obsess about it. And then you start sort of fearing the people you love the most. Like I always felt so safe around my father and to this day still do, but it really fucked with my head for a little while. I never felt safe around my father. Mm -hmm. I never did because of that. But also, you know, he was a little bit weird. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. As, as as weird as my dad is and was growing up, he it, there was never an doubt in my mind that he loved me more than life itself, which was, you know, great, which is probably why I'm so close to him now, you know? Yes. Yeah. But anyway, enough about me. Nobody wants to hear about me. <laughs> so as your writing starts to progress and you start dealing with just you, you as a person, Laura, what and it's my understanding you went to the house where you were uh, abused to yes. reclaim it. Uh, yeah, well, I, uh, well, eventually. So I, I started writing these monologues. They were all fiction. And then in 2007, I'd already written, I think, by this point, um, uh, like four, four different one person shows. But in 2007, I wanted to write a play about my mother's experience during the war. And so I went to Poland and Germany and I traced her where she was, all the different places that she was. 
starting in her hometown and ending up in this town in Germany where she was liberated. And then I, I wrote a piece about it. And I wanted to write about the aftermath of trauma. And I was very, in because of my upbringing with my mom, especially, I was just really interested in the legacy of trauma. And I, at that point, I was also really interested in story because story was seen as such a panacea and, and, and so much uh, uh, affiliated with healing, right? And I was doing some of that work too, helping people tell their story and write about it. But I was also suspicious of story and I wanted to write about my suspicion because I knew that a story of victimization is a story that can keep us in a, in, in a, a box. And it also can be a license to harm other people. And I was very, very interested in this. And I was kind of interested in this Holocaust story, which is sacrosanct, um, but also kind of challenging it in a way, not challenging the fact that it happened, but looking at this, what I was, what I inherited and what, what is my responsibility? What can I do with this? Right. Because I felt I could do this. Um, I could use this as a, as a, I could use this as an excuse to, as license to harm other people. This, what I was given this history of murder. My family was murdered, fucking murdered. And I could use this, um, to help me and to benefit the world. Or I could use this to harm other people and say, Hey, I was, you know, I was, my family was murdered and now I'm going to, I'm going to murder you, or I'm going to be involved in something that is going to harm you. Anyway, I was interested in that. So I, I wrote this play that was my first foray into autobiography about this journey I took through Poland and a little bit of Germany. Um, and then I thought, you know what? I feel like I need some street cred if I'm going to talk about the aftermath of trauma, let me just throw in a little bit about my own sexual abuse, because then it's not just me writing about my mother's trauma and my inherited trauma, but my direct trauma and what I know of that. So I threw in that little bit and I just found it so freeing, so freeing to just kind of put it out on the stage and then have people respond. And some people did respond just to that piece. And tell me how they'd been sexually abused. This was in 2007, 10 years before Me Too. And after that, I just got really interested in, in talking about sexual abuse, my own sexual abuse, and to do so in a way that might um, help other people normalize a discussion of it, normalize a discussion. So it took a few years to find its form, but eventually I wrote a, a a one person play just about that. And, um, and then that became my book, um, the pleasure plan. And now I'm turning that into a television series. Yeah. I read the pilot. It's very good. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. <laughs> well, yes. As when I got the commission to write the play, I was going to use art as a way to structure my healing because I didn't know how to heal from this childhood sexual abuse. And so when I was given the play commission, I, all I knew was, oh, I, well, what I felt like I knew was I knew how to structure a theater project. 
an art project. I knew how to, how to, yeah, how to structure it, how to give it a whole beginning, middle, and end. And so I thought, well, let me use that template. So I'm going to write about my sexual healing basically in real time. I'm going to see all different kinds of practitioners and do all these interesting kinds of healing um, techniques. And I'm going to turn this source material into a play. That's that's the challenge that I gave myself, knowing in the back of my mind, this was the only way I was ever going to heal because I would catapult my healing. I would force myself to heal because I had to put something on the stage and I had a deadline and I had a, a performance that was scheduled. So I had to come up with something. Um and so, yeah, I forced myself into a healing that I didn't know how to do. And I felt otherwise just very frightened of and overwhelmed by. And one of the things that I concocted was a scene. I thought, oh, I'm going to go back to Brooklyn. I'm going to drive from my home in D.C. It's about five hours. I went in December around this time, but it was it was hailing that day and freezing rain. And I drove in this horrible, horrible weather. And my idea was I'm going to get into the house. I was molested in a garage. And I'm like, I'm going to get in, I'm going to find my way into this garage. And um, by some miracle, I stuck around, there was nobody home. And uh, I didn't know who lived there. But by some miracle, some people came home from work eventually. It was dark. <laughs> it was so cold. But they let me in their house. And I, I told them a lie that I used to play in this house. And I got in there and the garage was gone. The garage was gone. They remodeled the house. And they turned that garage into an entry vestibule. And all the places that were in my memory of that were implicated in my abuse, a barrel that this old man stood me up on, um, just really disgusting, you know, walls, wet, damp, musty, musty, moldy walls, all of that was gone and was now, um, was now this very nice little anteroom in somebody's home. And so it just, uh, it, it changed my memory um, irreparably because now I cannot remember what happened to me without first this memory of being there in this present day room, which, and that memory is infused with a feeling of power and courage that I did this freaky thing, <laughs> freaky thing. Um, 11 years ago, this month. And so abuse is, is, is de facto, a, 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 um, it's a trauma of powerlessness. The trauma, I believe, is much of the trauma is lies in that sense of powerlessness. But now superseded on top of that memory of powerlessness is a memory of power, personal power. And so um, even though I I did this because it would be, I thought, a kick-ass scene, and I do believe it is a kick-ass scene in the play and in the book, um, I, it, it really changed, it changed my relationship with that trauma. Wow. That's an incredible moment. That gave me shivers when you're telling it. That's an incredible 
moment. And I, I remember when we had lunch, you said something, I, I'm going to paraphrase it, but basically it was, it was as if the, the, the place itself held everything. And when it changed, it allowed you to change. Yeah, it was like um, I was holding on to this old trauma, but the the room, the house had moved on. That's what you said. Yeah, so profound to me. And so it, it posed me, it posed a question to me: Can I move on? Right? If the if the wall had moved on, if the desk, had, <laughs> not the desk, but the barrel had moved on, what about me? Can I move on now? Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. How a lot of what you write about and talk about um, is about how your body through the years responded to that initial trauma and how you've spent your life undoing that damage. Yes. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, I found with my own trauma that it's been really, really sneaky the way that my body has absorbed it. and. And yeah, so, you know, I went to, I started therapy when I was 27 and I was really into it from the beginning. I, I, I love therapy and, and then I was kind of in and out of it for, um, have been in and out of it, you know, for 30 years now and, and currently in it and still love it, love it, love it. But Prior to the last couple of years when I've been with my current therapist, most therapists didn't really um, pick up on, on my trauma because I felt that this kind of trauma or maybe trauma generally often lives in a, in a, like very prescribed ways. Like if you go through the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, you'll find what the criteria are for PTSD, for instance. So on the surface, I don't meet those criteria. And so I would see therapists and they'd say, oh, you have no PTSD, you're good to go. You've, you've done quite well. You, you have, um, you've done, you know, fine for yourself. You don't have depression. You don't have anxiety. You don't have PTSD. So you're, you're good. You've got, of course, you know, a million Jewish neuroses, but, um, (laughs) you know, nothing really like, you know, profound, like that we put you on meds or, you know, or, um, so, you know, so they were just like, you're fine. In fact, as part of my project um, for the play that I wrote that then became um, the book and now the TV series, I went to see a trauma therapist specifically who specialized in sexual trauma. And um, and I told her the story of my mother saying, that's what men are like. Don't go near him. And she said to me, your mother was right. <laughs> And then she said, what your mother said was a gift because because it forced you to take care of yourself and to form a a, a sense of agency in the world. And now you have agency. And she said, so many people that I see don't have a sense of agency. And I was like, 
really like should I tell you the story again because like <laughs> this is like doesn't feel like a gift you know that I felt like I had to take care of myself as a you know as a six-year-old and you know and 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 have lived my life feeling like uh, you know like I'm a uh, I, I could be attacked at any moment by a male person, you know, anyway. So, so that's kind of, um, you know, in line with a lot of the, the therapy. And so it, it masked for me the way that my trauma actually lived in my body. And, um, and the way that it lived was through pelvic pain. I, I'm very weird still to this day. I'm still working on like a lot of issues around my breasts. I have a lot of basically PTSD that lives in the body. Uh, uh, in my book, I call it PTSD of the vagina. And I, I do, I also have PTSD of the boobies. And could there's a kind of hypervigilance that the body has, um, where, you know, where I, it, it might, um, you know, less in the, in, in the lower half of the body. Cause I, I worked on that so, so long and so hard. Um, so I, I heal that. Um, but, uh, but I still have it a little bit with regard to my, my breasts and something like I, I go into a kind of, um, like panic mode. Um, yeah. Yeah. And as a married person that probably took some figuring out between you and your partner, you posted something on your, you have a great Twitter, you have a great uh, social media, and we'll talk about how people can find you. But you said you posted one, I think it was from today where it said, does your partner, your, I think you said girlfriend or wife or something, but does your partner would not want to have sex with you? Maybe it's digestive. And I thought, damn straight. Cause I'm celiac. So it takes longer for my food to digest than, than quote unquote normies. And, uh, and so for me, it's not real sexy to feel like, Oh my God, for a, I'm super bloaty and B what if, you know, something, what if I pass gas or something, you know what I mean? There's like, and so that's up in your head and granted, if you farted with a lover, they'd probably just laugh and you'd all move on. But it doesn't stop that thing. Like my whole life going, oh gosh, you know, my stomach's all bloaty. I don't feel sexy, all this. I just need a little bit of time to digest food. And it's not the other person, but I think they feel digested. They feel dejected if you're not immediately responsive to advances. Because in their mind, they're like, wait, we were intimate earlier today. Why all of a sudden are you not, you know? And it is such a thing. And then you feel bad, like, oh, I feel bloaty and gross. And they were like, oh, we don't care. We're fine with that. And it's like, yeah, you're fine with that. But it's my body. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you don't want to, like, if you're really gassy, sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to say it because this is, hey, human. But, um, you know, sometimes you just, you, you don't want to have sex. You just kind of want to fart away. Yeah. You know, and it's like, well, that's what I feel like doing. I just feel like watching some some of the tube and and like tooting away. And um, I yeah, I don't want to have to <laughs> want to have sex. So I think it's like part of it is like, okay, this is an obstacle, and also times sometimes it's a preference. I just want to be with my gut. Just want to be like me and my belly tonight, and like. That's that's it. Or even for a couple hours, just as long as it, you know, whatever it takes. But it, it is you do raise very real 
real world issues in your social media when you talk about this stuff, because look, we're just a tube. <laughs> we're doing the best we can, you know, <laughs> we're doing the best we can. We're doing the best we can. And I think, you know, sometimes, you know, it is a kind of a, a thing where people talk about, um, oh, you know, like the first time you fart in front of each other and stuff like that, you know, but I think we need to expand the conversation to like, right, like what happens if you have, if you do have a digestive issue, you know, people have all kinds of things, celiac, IBS, you know, it could just be, I have a very sensitive stomach, I may have like be on the (laughs) celiac spectrum or something, I think I don't have it full out, but I definitely feel better when I don't have gluten. So, um, and, but I'm like, my stomach is just like super, super, um, sensitive to, you know, things that other people are fine. I can't drink coffee, for instance, without my stomach going, what is going on? Right. That's why I always say to lovers, here's the deal. I am happy to be intimate before dinner. (laughs) After dinner, I'm going to need a couple hours. (laughs) Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why can't we do that? I do. I just like, this is the facts. This is the way God made my body. So how did you find that peace with a partner to go through all the things that you went through? Did it, was there a a time where you thought, oh God, there's no way I'm going to be able to stay married? Or did you know, no, I can do this? Because you're sort of, you seem to me like myself, a baptism by fire. You just jump in and with the tea, this is fine. You know, the fire going all around you. (laughs) Um, It was a big process with my husband. You know, I jumped in. Um, I have a lot of um, boldness. I decided recently I have a lot of confidence, you know, that's that's, um, married to a a sense of boldness, but I don't always have the self-esteem to back it up. (laughs) But anyway, so I do have boldness and a certain degree of courage, I suppose. So I jump into things. Um, And so I jumped into this theater project. My husband was not enthusiastic about this way of of dealing with our our sexual issues. Um, He he questioned it a lot. Like, why would I need to do something so public? Because what I was proposing was I was going to do this big healing project. I was going to put our sex life or, you know, trying to heal our sex life on the stage. And he felt that that was inappropriate. He also thought it was re-traumatizing for me. He didn't understand why I kept bringing up my trauma. He just didn't understand the whole process. And he felt um, kind of blindsided by it. I didn't let him read anything that I was writing. Mistakenly, um, so we had a lot of um, a lot of conflict around it, um, and uh, but eventually it worked its its way out. Um, I you know at some point I I um, I changed the name his name and uh, and 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 just turned him into like a perfect being, and he was at a reading I was doing and. His name was Matt in the play. And people were like, I don't buy this like husband, this Matt. Like, there's just like, he's just, that doesn't seem real, you know? And then my husband really heard that. And he's like, okay, maybe you can put more, you know, more of the reality on the stage and the, you know, the issues that we're facing. But at some point in the process, my husband started to realize that, um, that he, 
that I was not the only one who was entitled to sexual healing. That he also was entitled to sexual healing in our relationship. And that he also needed it and, and craved it. And, um, and for him, it was just more, you know, past relationships and uh, his own relationship with his body. Mm-hmm. And with his sexuality and, and, uh, you know, and, and growing up not feeling, um, yeah, not feeling confident in his, in his body. Um, and, uh, and, you know, carrying around an image of himself as like a chubby, you know, a, a, a chubby boy and, and different things that, um, that got in the way of him really feeling, um, you know, like he was on a road to reach his sexual potential. And so, that was really um phenomenal turn in our relationship where we you know we were like okay well let's let's put this together <laughs> we said at the beginning of our relationship we kind of said things i but i don't think we understood what it meant you know we said oh let our relationship be a healing journey for both of us but it wasn't until i i started to go on the sexual healing project that it really um got real and we really saw like, oh, what, what are these things that we're, um, that we're holding on to? And how could we actively, um, put this healing into our bedroom? Wow. It's beautiful and tricky and hard. It's hard work. Yeah. It's, it's, it is hard work, but it's, it's also constant, uh, work or constant attention, I guess, you know, constant attention, just really, just um I was listening to a podcast, <laughs> podcast, listening to a podcast. Um, we were driving back from Massachusetts the other day and uh, and we were listening to this podcast on relationships. And uh and this person was talking about uh the history of marriage and that today's marriage has these expectations attached to it, that your partner is going to fulfill you on all these different levels all these different levels. And that's not the history of marriage. Marriage originally was just a financial arrangement between a couple of families or two farms or, you know, people had, you know, just a patch of land and somebody else had another patch of land. It's like, well, let's just put those two patches together and we will have, you know, just a kind of survival thing. But it's become this other thing with these huge expectations that somebody's going to be Oh, you know, you're going to have transcendent sex, but also you're going to have security and you're going to have, you know, be these, uh, these parents and you're going to have, um, you know, this person's going to be your best friend and they're going to be the, your confidant and give you the best advice, you know, just load it on, load it on. And this researcher was talking about how what, um, she found was that these expectations could go two ways. They can lead to people being extremely dissatisfied in their marriages, more so, she speculates, than people who got married, let's say, 400 years ago and just did it to put together the two patches, because now there's this, this profound sense of disappointment, not needing, right, this, uh, this expectation. But it could also go the other way where couples could create something very, very um, uh, profound, like could have like a super relationship um, where they do connect on all of these different levels. 
But in order for that to happen, the couple needs to put um, a lot of attention and constant work into the relationship to make that happen. And there has to be a potential for that, I guess, in terms of shared values around this and certain uh, amounts of um, of compatibility. I think that that is a, a, I think is a prerequisite. You know, if you're not strongly attracted to somebody, for instance, to your partner, it's hard to create like amazing, amazing sex with this person. It's going to be an inherent thing. Or, you know, if you have like wildly different spiritual beliefs or, you know, political beliefs or, you know, or, or, um, or interests, right? So I think this compatibility is a, is, is, is really, um, uh, important. But I, as my husband and I were listening to it, uh, I said to him, I'm like, well, we have that relationship, but we definitely feed it. We definitely put a lot of work on it. Think about it uh, a lot. Talk about our relationship, um, are always trying to improve things between us. Well, I think too, when you said, as you were going through your stuff and your husband realizing that, oh, he too had stuff that he maybe wasn't aware of. I think that too is something really important to mention that, you know, as you are holding space for your partner, hold space for yourself to see how, how you're feeling, what your body's doing, what your brain and heart and soul are doing throughout the process, because it's probably talking to you. And if you spend all your focus on the other person, that's not healthy either. You know, we are mirrors of each other. And I do think that people come together to to learn and and shape one another. I always think of the the healthiest relationships look more like a Venn diagram where you have this great stuff in the middle, but there's also room for you to be an independent human being learning and growing in your own right. And then coming back to the center and reflecting and and mirroring and, and growing together and then separating a little bit and doing that. And that's to me, seems really healthy. Yeah, I love that. I, I I think that that's perfect, a perfect image, that Venn diagram. Yeah. And I mean, relationships are tricky. We barely can figure out how to love ourselves, let alone another human being. You know, and we we pour all this emotion and, and love and respect and adoration on another um, as in some ways it feels like it's a surrogacy of our own self. Mm. You know, all that love we can't give ourselves, a lot of times we obsess or pour into another, you know, because maybe there's the idea that somewhere it will reflect back upon us because we don't know how to give it to ourselves. Yeah, or we think, um, you know, as a substitute for giving it to ourselves, we're going to force this person, we're going to give them so much that they're going to give us back. And, and their love for us is somehow going to be the thing that makes us feel loved. But that doesn't work if you don't have that. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't work. It, it, you might get a proximity of what you're looking for, but I, I don't know that it would actually fill you up the way you think it will you being the royal you of course Uh, laura this is awesome tell everybody how to find you and uh you've got books coming out you've written a ton of stuff you've got uh you've done so many talks and you've done so many uh uh writing for various books uh anthology that's what i'm looking for anthologies tell people how they might find you and all the things sure well the best place to find me is laurazam.com 
which is L-A-U-R-A, Z like zebra, A as in apple, M as in Mary.com. And it's all there. Everything that I, I've got. Um, I'm, I'm revamping a few things for the new year as one does. So, but everything will be right there in one place. And so I've got uh, a freebie that you can download. It's called Five Simple Solutions to Any Sex Problem, Any Sex Problem. So I do encourage people to, to download that and get this little gift. And I also have all kinds of courses that I'm going to be offering in the new year at different price points and um yeah covering a lot a lot of ground that is all connected in some way to sexual healing and sexual healing i define as a journey toward or to pleasure intimacy wholeness so wherever people are if they want more of that i call that journey sexual healing and i hope that people will join me and uh, reach out to me Absolutely. And you're, again, the social medias that you do are great. You're on Instagram, you're on Twitter. Uh, you're probably on Facebook too. Yes. Yeah. And everything's at, uh, accessible from my website. You can see all the links. And, so, yeah. Yeah. yeah That's probably put- the easiest than, you know, saying, oh, well, this <laughs> Twitter is this sure. handle and Facebook's that handle. Yeah. And I'll put links for everything on HeyHumanPodcast.com. The so people can just go there if they forget or, you know. And, and that works out too. Laura, you are an exceptional human. I'm so glad that we met. Uh, I'm excited to see what you're going to keep creating. Um, thank, thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you. This is such, such a pleasure to just chat with you again. Yeah, it's really lovely. Let me know if you're in California anytime in the upcomings. Yeah, you're the best. So much fun. Thank you. Okay, we'll talk soon. Okay. Okay. And thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.